Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. I'm Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. It is Friday, May 1st. It feels so good to have a new month as we uh, introduce shows. Uh, we have a great guest today. We have Jason Collette from Rotowire, from Fangraphs. He's part of the Sleeper and the Bus Crew. Absolutely one of the best fantasy baseball pods around. I imagine if you're listening to this show, you also listen to Sleeper and the Bust already. But if you don't, absolutely add that to your queue of shows. Jason, how's it going today? Uh, it is going well. We have fantastic weather here in Charlotte, North Carolina today, uh, and I am looking forward to enjoying some of it later today. I got really excited because um, I live in an apartment, and the crew that comes by to cut the grass was here today mowing. And just the sound of mowing got me fired up for the possibility of being outside more and uh, maybe even seeing some baseball at some point uh, later on this summer. Hey, so How are things like going in Chicago crossover? today, was was Kyle was Kyle Gibson yeah. on that landscaping crew? Just asking. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was not on this crew today. No. How are things going over in Chicago today, Beller? Uh, they're pretty good, man. I, I feel the same way. We've uh, we feels, feels like we finally broken through the uh, upper Midwest malaise. Got some sunshine. Wish we had some baseball to go along with it. Uh, but that's what we're here to do today. Uh, talk a little bit about baseball. Get hopeful that we maybe have something coming in you know, a month, six weeks, whatever it might be. And uh, it's nice that we can still talk about the sport that we love uh, even when it's not being played. Absolutely. And we have been taking part in some auctions the last few weeks. We've talked about the Triple Crown uh, three-part league that I put together. Jason was in all three legs of that. Uh, we talked about the mix and the AL. We just did the NL auction on Wednesday night. Now we're kind of looking at our calendars for next week and wondering, what do we do on Wednesday night? We had something to do each of the last <laughs> three weeks. But uh, Jason, let's start talking about the team that you put together. And this was a, a pretty interesting series of auctions, I thought, because in the mixed league, most of the room was pretty disciplined, which is unexpected for a mixed in the AL, there was seemingly not a lot of spending early and then uh, overspending later on. And then the NL kind of did the opposite. The NL almost played more the way I would have expected uh, the mixed league to play. Uh, how did you use what was happening in the first two auctions to kind of formulate your plan for the third one that we just did this week? Yeah, so for me, one of the things I've always been able to do uh, throughout playing fantasy baseball is I've never done... I've kept my my auctions and drafts separate, so I have not done a mixed auction since college, and I'm old. All right, like I did wow. I did mixed auctions, <laughs> and it was a keeper league auction. So we're talking like I'm buying Mariano Rivera before he was a closer type of thing. That's how long I go back. Uh, so I've always kept those things separate. So mixed has always been a draft for me. So that was unusual. So honestly, in my head, I'm like, okay, I'm doing a mixed auction, and I think back through doing all the observations and running the chat rooms of Tout Wars, and I just remember like you spending like a college freshman on a credit card, and other people just going through big and early. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do that because I don't know anything different. I don't want to be the guy that sits in all of his money and and, and buying. $25 middle relievers type of thing. So I'm going to spend early and often. Uh, and so that's how I did that. Then the other way, when we did the AL two weeks ago, and I was like, okay, I've done five of these already. I know how to do this. And I've really tried a different one in each one, given that I'm not sure if we're going to have, at the point, I'm not sure we're even going to have a season. So let, let's try some different things. Uh, and uh, one of the other parts of it in the mix, I, I also firmly believe we're going to see different utilization of pitching staffs this year so in that league in a mixed league i bought five relievers uh looking for like wins and saves 
uh, and the AL, if, if I'm going to go whole hog on that, I either got to do it across all three leagues or, or uh, balance my risk. So I balanced the risk in that, uh, and I ended up taking uh, you know one full-time closer and, and two guys I think may have the job. Uh, and then in the NL this week, it was kind of right in the middle of that. I, I didn't, I didn't take five relievers, but I didn't take one full-time guy in two setups. I think I took three closers, uh, in that just because of where the prices were. So I, I, I didn't have the same strategy, uh, each one of them, but I used a little bit from each one, uh, to prepare for the next week. Yeah. You, uh, you were the last person with a lot of money left around. Uh, you had, uh, um, one of the last people to, to really jump in and start spending. And if you look at your team and, and try to apply a draft, uh, template to it, your highest ADP guys are Kyle Schwarber, Hector Neris. And you had mentioned that you felt like you were in on the bidding on a lot of guys, but just didn't get the guys that you were bidding on. Uh, what happened early on when you were, uh, when you seemingly were kept coming up a dollar short on guys that you were in on? So for the for the NL and AL, because normally I do things through draft software just so I can uh, you know keep keep an eye on things, see where everybody's money is. But for the NL and AL, I honestly did it old school. I printed out pieces of paper so I could just scratch off guys as they were going along, uh, and so that was it. I wasn't looking at anything else. wasn't And then we were doing things in Zoom, obviously talking, and I kept playing with the max bid. Because I, you know, I would put it in there to say, okay, here comes a player. I'm going to put a number just to keep, keep push things along, 26, mm-hmm. and hit max bid. And so things would go one, two, three, and then the, the things would start jumping. Uh, and then I would still kept playing along. I just never realized until somebody said, hey, what's Colette saving all this money for? And I was like, oh, crap, I haven't bought a <laughs> lot of guys. But I had been participating actively, and I was you know the penultimate bid on a number of guys I just didn't realize that you know there was the one point where I, I forgot that I had nominated I had already rostered a catcher, uh, and so I almost got stuck with a second one. But somebody bailed me out and spent the two bucks. I'm like, whew, because uh, we were just joking because I had, I had rostered like four catchers in, in the in the AL or the NL forget or the mixed rather. But uh, I was just honestly paying attention there, but I didn't notice that even though I was active in just about every single player. I hadn't I hadn't bought that many, uh, so that wasn't by design that I was like, oh, I'm being cheap, I'm being cheap. I just didn't realize until I scrolled down because again, that RT Sports window, you don't see your roster unless you're scrolled down because there's only so much screen you can take. So once I scrolled down, I'm like, oh yeah, I've only bought three guys. Time to start buying. So that's really where that came into play. Um, I still like how the team came out overall, but it wasn't. I didn't realize I wasn't sitting on money by any kind of strategy. Thinking at the thinking back to the results now and some of the players that may have gotten away, is there anybody who stands out to you that you kind of wish you would have plus one in hindsight? Probably the first guy, Degrom. Uh, what, you got him for 40, 44, like forty four, like forty three, five, I think. Yeah, yeah. forty five. All right, should have gone more there. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's one of them I would look at. Uh, I was trying to think through some of the other prices because I didn't write. I, I just remember that one being something right out of the gate. I wish there were a couple other guys that I had I passed the, that I looked at, or I ended up buying somebody, and then somebody later went. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That was a good move, uh, letting that guy go. Like I wanted. We talked about in the Zoom uh, room the previous week or during mixed how you know. I like Herman Marquez. I like John Gray. And the fact that they're not going to pitch in Coors Field likely this year, and that that enhances their value. That said, I'm not paying $21 for Herman Marquez as the 12th, the 12th overall guy like like James did. Um, and then I went, I was playing around with John Gray, but I, you know, I think I was the, the 
the second highest bid on gray too but gray ended up going for fourteen dollars maybe i should have gone a little more than that uh, if i believe that uh, so that may be another guy because again him out of the colorado environment pitching there uh that would be a nice place that that's a nice value for him and getting to his point uh Lucchese depending on and and Beller you got you got Lucchese at nine he's a guy that I like this year if the new pitch uh, is real this year uh we'll see where that goes so I, I could have used something like that too a lot of yeah, I also remorse, feel like you can hear that <laughs> yeah. well I have I had uh, I had one really big one in Luis Castillo who went for thirty dollars to uh James Anderson and that was one that I uh, wished I didn't let uh, get away from me. Lucchese is interesting to me because I feel like with Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino, they're sort of in a – I think they're in a in a weird spot with how far away they are from the majors. Obviously, if the season started when it was supposed to, we almost certainly, I think, would have seen Gore. Maybe we see Patino uh, also this season. And it, it's you can make an argument either way for pitching prospects. I, I think there's you can make the argument that – if they're not quite ready, they're less likely to be pushed to the majors versus a hitting prospect who maybe teams don't worry about stunting their growth quite so much. On the other hand, as you mentioned, we know that there's going to be some interesting pitcher usage in a condensed, shortened season, and maybe that makes teams more willing to get their prospects up, especially if they don't want them. If there is no minor league season, they don't want them to sit at all for an entire year. I lean more toward Lucchese being safer because of this season being shortened, truncated, the way that it's going to be. But have you changed your strategy at all, especially with respect to pitching, based on what we expect this season to play out as, or how we can only guess the season's going to play out? So I, I, I believe in a, in, a, in a condensed season, managers are, are, will not be as willing to take as many chances as they do over the course of a full season. So like you have you have your starter in there, and he's on the ropes. And you're looking like, okay, do I let him go another batter or something? Uh, obviously, if we go with the universal DH, NL managers will have a new luxury to utilize over the course of a full season. You don't have to worry about, oh, I want to leave this guy in because I don't want to use a pinch hitter. It's like, fine, yank him. Uh, and so I see that. Plus, I see teams that have good bullpens really leveraging those bullpens. You know, you've got the great bullpen in New York uh, with the Yankees. You've got a great bullpen in Tampa Bay. You've got a great bullpen in San Diego, which is one reason why I really like Lucchese. You know, you go back and look at last year, uh, everybody has a third time through the order penalty. But if you if, if they would have just taken Lucchese out after two times through the order, his ERA drops from 418 to 349. His whip goes from 122 to 110. A lot of his damage came leaving him in late. But if, if the new pitch is real... Uh, if he's going to throw the change up to give something to move away from the righties that really that he lacked last year, I know he throws the churve, but he needs a third pitch, something to go another direction. And so if you can get that third pitch and be more willing to use that really good bullpen that they put together in San Diego, Lucchese's got some good value. Now, it may come at the cost of wins. He may not stay in the full five, but the ratios could be good. The strikeouts could be uh, could be good because everybody's impacted by different utilization. But that's really what got him into trouble last year is just staying in games too long. They don't have to do that this year. Yeah, the the pool of where wins comes from could be you know, really shallow. Mm-hmm. It could just be flattened out in a huge way where uh, guys are getting what we'd call proper usage in the rotation because if there are more players in the roster, more bullpen options, more guys who can go maybe even two or three innings to go behind someone who leaves during the fifth inning, that's going to change tactics for managers quite a bit. And I think another part of that on a team like San Diego, aside from the deep big league bullpen, if they were to push up prospects like Gore and Patino, those guys need innings somewhere. I mean, why not give them 
uh, a partial season or most of a season in the big leagues, even as multi-inning relievers, mm-hmm. just to get them facing advanced competition. Because a lot of those guys, they're also a third pitch away, and they can get through the lineup at least one time. So I think wins are going to be a huge, huge pain as we think about ways uh, this season could take shape. And uh, one other question about the, the general structure of your roster here. I, I like your pitching staff a lot. I mean, Hector Neris at 20, Doolittle at 14, uh, and then you had one more reliever, Emilio Pagan at 10. Ratios could be a strength here. You got plenty of uh, paths to saves with Neris and Doolittle kind of leading up that group. David Price at 19 is in a dream scenario with the Dodgers. Like, he was pitching really well before the injury last year. Do, are you finding that David Price is just being overlooked in drafts and auctions in general? Uh, I, yeah, I do. Uh, and that when he was the first starting pitcher I had purchased, I believe I had all three of my relievers rostered before I bought David Price. Uh, and there was, if I, I'm looking back at some of the pitchers that had gone previously, you're like right in front of him, uh, Fulton Navies for, for 12. I bought Pagan uh, at night at the 95th overall at 10. Uh, Julio Urias at 20. So I'm able to get Price cheaper than Urias. And the role is more defined for Price right now. I think people are underselling just how miserable he was in Boston uh, with everything. And that change of scenery, I think, helps tremendously. He looks a lot happier. I mean, normally it's it's tough to measure the human element uh, and that factor of things. But, yeah. it, it clearly getting out of Boston is 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 should uh, it has made him happy uh, with everything you see how he's reacting for things obviously an explosive offense uh, really as you said earlier win dependent I don't know what, what that what's going to happen there but if somebody can pitch five and dive on a reliable basis it'll be him uh, and especially with the universal DH and play doesn't you know he doesn't need to uh, doesn't have to worry about staying in an ending if it's five and out he's out. Uh, and so I'm I'm encouraged to what he can do in L.A. Uh, over the full season. I think it would have been more noticeable over the short season. It's, you know, we know what he can do with ratios uh, when he's good. Uh, and getting out of Boston is the main reason why I was attracted to him there. Yeah, I was jealous of that David Price by <clears throat> excuse me by you. Um, I had purchased uh, Ross Stripling relatively early, and I think he's going to be a guy who benefits from. You know, more more usage in long relief, or at least the way long relievers are going to be used, swingmen mm-hmm. are going to be used. And I, I I had a plan, a sort of a loose plan in mind to pair him with another non Kershaw, non Bueller Dodgers starter, feeling like those two guys could work well in tandem in a scenario like this. Uh, it didn't come to fruition for me. I was a pretty big spender early, but I really liked the price buy a lot. I was wondering if beyond David Price on your team, there was anyone else you were particularly excited about landing. Uh, I like not the, not exactly at the price, but Corey Dickerson at eighteen dollars, and that was because there was a lot of money sitting in the middle of it. Dickerson's being projected to hit in the middle of that Miami lineup, and Dickerson's hit for a high average the last couple of years. It used to be something where people thought he was oh he can't hit lefties. Well, he's able to hit lefties of late. Always oh, just a Coors product feel, but he's hit for average outside of Coors the last couple of years. Uh, and so I I like him, but this price wasn't great. But I keep seeing him fall down. Uh, in auctions because that's where because he's just being overlooked in the middle of the lineup you can fall in, in, a, in a normal season you can fall in 85 RBIs if you hit fourth 
you know, it, it's upside from there. Go back and look at Delman Young's rookie year. Uh, you know, another guy I liked that I bought shortly thereafter was Brandon Belt at 14 because he's not playing in San Francisco. He's gonna if if they're gonna play in Arizona, that's a better ballpark for him. I mean, he's got to hit uh, in San Francisco with that massive right center field alley, which hurts him. Uh, so I, I did pursue him for that purpose, and then. Jose Quintana at six bucks, getting back to a, a safe starter because uh, he has a lot of the same problems Lucchese has. You leave him in the game too long, he really gets mm-hmm. beat up. But they can—they don't have to leave him in the game as long here. Uh, and so I, I like getting him at six dollars because he's somebody you can. If, if they're going to let somebody go five consistently, um, it'll be him. I mean, I don't see every starter going five consistently, but it's somebody like him where he can do 18, 20 batters and get out. Uh, and we've seen what he can do when he's good. Maybe a guy who benefits from having Alec Mills and or Tyler Chatwood uh, in that Cubs bullpen, potentially coming in behind him. You say with Corey Dickerson, $18, you like the player, you don't love the price. Um, that's fine with me. And and I feel as though you can get too caught up in what the market price is in your auction room and lose sight of who the players are. When you go and do an auction, uh, not necessarily just this one, but just in general, how much fidelity do you have to prices that you feel should be uh, held going into it? And how willing are you to extend those based on the player who is on the block? I never isolate on the player. I isolate on the skills and then look from there, like have a, you know, look at buckets and say, okay, this is the type of skill set that I'm looking for. And like in that regard, when I was, when I was trying to fill a spot, I'm looking for somebody, I remember very vividly at that point of the auction, I need somebody that hits for average that could be run producer. And and so there were multiple buckets there. Uh, Like right before uh, DVR, you got uh, McCutcheon at 21 bucks, about six picks before. I think I went 19 or 20 on him. Uh, But I was like, okay, I have other options here. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and let this one go. And so I looked and, and Dickerson was the next guy that came up. I think I nominated him and then I ended up purchasing. But you always have to have other options so you don't get locked in on a player. It's like, oh, God, I have to have this guy. And then you get stuck You get stuck swimming against somebody else who also has to have that same guy. Uh, because you at that point, you're, we're 120 picks in. You're starting to see how your roster's playing out. And you're not going to be the only team that has that type of need where – I need a strikeout guy. I need somebody that can really anchor down my ratios. I need this. There's going to be at least one other team, and you start ending up with those bidding wars because there's going to be somebody else in a 15-team format who also has some money. Maybe not in a 12, but in a 15, you could have two or three teams pursuing the same type of player You know, 150 picks in. We saw some of this. We saw some prices where we're like, wow, that guy went for that price this late in the auction, but it happened. I think it's interesting, too, though, because... That exactly what you described is something I'm afraid of when we're talking about speed or maybe even like a big power bat, uh, strikeout saves. There are certain categories that everybody in the room does recognize where the, this is the last player who can get 20 steals. This is the last person who might have a shot at 20 saves. And bidding can be pretty aggressive on those players. And I think with guys like Dickerson and McCutcheon, who I bought at 21, and even David Peralta, who I bought at 20, I'm a little more comfortable feeling the need when it's balanced out skills with a lot of playing time. I think all three of those guys had prominent spots in their lineups, very solid skills across the board, and you could you could end up in a bidding war on anybody, but I think you're less likely to end up in a bidding war on that skill set uh, than, say, uh, you know maybe like an Ender in Ciarte or, or somebody who just carries a lot of their value in one or maybe two more scarce categories. Yeah, exactly right, and that's that's where you have to look 
uh, you know, when you see some, oh, then you get into some late phase where somebody's sitting on a player. It's like, oh, this is the guy I want. And I think uh, Trent Grisham was, uh, Pat bought Trent Grisham uh, at 11 bucks. I think a lot of people were hoping to get Trent Grisham at that phase because I remember looking at the depth chart and saying, wow, he's clearly the, the guy with the most upside at this point of the auction. But it's like, I, he was somebody that I was looking at earlier, but I knew I didn't, at that point, I didn't have the money to do that. So I'm not going to hope, I'm not going to pass on bargains and hope that Grisham's still there and I can sneak him in late. I'm going to go ahead and get what I need now and then let, and reduce that player pool and let other people fight out. I, you know, early, early, uh, early fantasy player, Jason would do that. He would hold out and wait and have to overpay. But you learn that lesson enough times. You, that's why you don't get set on the player. You get set on the skill. And if the, if the price is right, you buy whoever that is uh, and worry about things later and not try to, and be, oh, I didn't get my favorite guy. I love this guy. I've got him in five leagues. I wanted him here and I didn't get him. Who cares? You know, guys, I got to say, I had fallen off our Zoom chat uh, by this point of the auction, but I feel like the last, I don't know, three, three and a half minutes of you guys talking has all been one big verbal subtweet of me paying $27 for Dansby Swanson. <laughs> but no, like no, that's exactly the type of player that should get pulled Josh up that James. high. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was the one that we were definitely on uh, – on the kick on this week, just it, it still blows my mind. I paid twenty five, I think, for Miguel and Duhar because, again, there just wasn't a lot there, and that's not usually how it plays out. But sometimes it comes back and really bites you. Uh, question for you, just kind of shifting the focus over to the Rays and some some broader topics. If you were going to bet a saves prop on the Rays bullpen for the upcoming season, assuming there's a season, would you take Nick Anderson or the field? And we'll just make it an even minus one ten situation on both sides. The field, I mean, if anything, if anybody's going to take advantage of a short season and do crazy stuff, it's going to be Tampa Bay. I mean, they've always done mm-hmm. it. One of the things, as as, as closely as, I, as I've followed this team over the years, they rarely tend to do the expected thing. Uh, you know, when Romo came over, oh, you know, Romo's not going to be the guy. He ended up being the guy. Uh, you know, these different types of things happened last year during draft season. Everybody was like, wow, you know, Jose Alvarado and Diego Castillo, what a one-two punch. This could be an amazing bullpen. Well, Alvarado sucked. Couldn't find the plate. Castillo had his problems off and on throughout the season. Uh, and then they traded for Nick Anderson, and we saw what Nick Anderson was do. But with Pagan, Pagan's acquisition was more viewed as a hey, righty specialist has his issues against lefties. Well, then he comes over here and was one of the best relievers in baseball last year. Uh, and so that's you know, we'll see what happens with it. And this isn't a slight on Nick Anderson, but I mentioned the depth of the, of the Tampa Bay bullpen. There's a lot of options there. You know, if Alvarado rediscovers himself, why can't he rediscover the job? Uh, and they just maybe Kevin Cash just says, you know what? This is the guy who's available tonight. This is the guy that's going to go out there for saves. I think last year there were 10 different pitchers on the club that had at least one save. Uh, and so that, that script's already been written if they want to apply that for this year. Maybe, you know, you got somebody coming in, you got three lefties coming up, and it's like, you know what? Hey, Oliver Drake, you and that splitter, go. You're the guy tonight. Uh, uh, Andrew Kittredge is a guy I keep drafting in the reserves because you look at the growth Kittredge made last year. Uh, the skills are there. Uh, we can see what happens uh, with him, and so he's the guy I keep taking a flyer on in AL reserves just to see what happens. But I truly believe it's going to be the field leading the leading the Tampa Bay Rays and saves this year. That's two straight Friday shows of this uh, podcast where we've uh, had Oliver Drake mentioned. How about that? 
<laughs> There's no fly, way man. it happens. I try to mimic it out in the in the in the front yard with my son in the blitz ball. I try to I try to throw the Oliver Drake splitter in delivery. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> cause it's, it's a nasty pitch and he's even talking about trying to, uh, to add a new pitch this year, which would make him a little more intriguing. So you mentioned that we know it's a very flexible staff. We know it's a, a brain trust that is more than willing to experiment. How should we, uh, bet on that manifesting itself with respect to usage for Ryan Yarbrough and Yanni Chirinos? Uh, I would put both of those guys in the you know, the three to four inning utilization type of guys. I mean, we saw, we saw uh, Yanni was more of a traditional starter last year, but he does wear down. Whereas uh, Yarbrough was, was the bulk guy. He would come in in the second inning and do that way. Uh, so I would, I would prefer to see Chirinos used in that, in that bulk role this year, but moving forward, he should be used as a starter. I mean, he, we can, we've seen him do really well. Uh, we've seen the potential there. Yarbrough, I think, is at his peak value. I don't see another uh, step forward for him, but Sharinas, I think there's a little more there in the tank. But the overall picture with the club, and this is where I've struggled with, with in the eight, eight, uh, the five or six AL um, drafts and auctions that I've done, is I see a lot of, of production by committee on this team. You look at how things are stacked up. You've got power bats on the right side with Renfro and then uh, and Jose Martinez, and then you've got Yoshi Susugo. You've got the righty-lefty. Thing you you can see a lot of platooning, and that's not what we want to hear in a fantasy uh, for fantasy draft, especially in a shortened season. But that could happen, uh, and that's where I've always struggled to to look at it. I can see uh, Meadows and Adamas getting as much playing time as possible, but like beyond that, I struggle to see. Okay, yep, this guy's going to get 80, uh, 80, 85, 90 percent of the plate appearances. It could be the other way. You know, things could work around. So that's where I think that we may see some uh, where where depth is a is a nice luxury for a real baseball team, but for fantasy players it's it sucks cuz you like you're trying to project like I need this guy to get this much playing time, but you're at the you're at the whims of Kevin Cash and looking at matchups and saying, "You know what? I'm going to go with this lineup today." Yeah, it's going to drive us crazy and I mean, if it's league wide, it's going to drive us all crazy, but if there's only a handful of teams that are really optimally mixing and matching and they're using good players to do it. It's going to reduce the value of those guys, and it's going to leave us with some really tough lineup decisions throughout the year. Uh, Jason, every year you build a new pitch tracker at Fangraphs, so I wanted to ask you, who kind of stood out to you on this year's list as someone who was really developing something that might unlock a completely new level in 2020? So yeah, I mentioned Lucchese earlier with the third pitch because he has you know he's got the the fastball and the chirp, but he needs something. Both of those pitches really come into the righties, uh, and that's where he's had he needs something just to go away from the righties. So if he can get the the changeup, that helps him uh, avoid that third time through, lessen the damage of the third time through the order penalty. Nobody can truly avoid it; it's there for everybody, uh, and that's where it hurts. I want to see what Freddie Peralta and the, and bringing the slider back. If you look back at some of that winter ball video of him using that pitch, it looks really good, and that'll be very intriguing. Uh, you know, staying with them, even uh, Eric Lauer reworking his changeup. Uh, you look at Eric Lauer's an intriguing guy because if you look at his stats last year, you're like, oh, those ratios, they're not good, but. Colorado, Coors Field, he had three starts in Colorado, 30 base runners and eight innings of work. Just obliterated his whip, and he gave up a ton of runs in there as well. And there's some intrigue uh, if you know he could avoid those starts, of course, which happens this year. And it, he may not even have to pitch in, in Miller Park, which is a nice thing. So we'll see where that particular piece goes uh, with some of those guys. And that's uh, I want to see where 
Tanaka and working on the cutter. He didn't throw it a lot last year, uh, but you know, he throws a huge bag of pitches already. But that's another guy that really paid that third uh, time through the order penalty. But having uh, some more pitches to lean on uh, with the cutter would really help him because he had issues against lefties. And if he can get in the, inside the kitchen with that cutter on lefties, could really uh, limit the damage on them. And that's where, and finally, because I can't quit him, Nick Pavetta. I mean, he did a lot of work this winter uh, <laughs> with the changeup. And he and he's. I want to give Nick Pavetta one more chance. I mean, he he redid some things. Uh, kind of went into the 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 Lucas Giolito training model. I think used some of the same guys and, and reworked delivery. Not to say he's going to bust out and be an NL Cy Young candidate this year, but I want to see if the if the work the hard work over the offseason paid off because. I, I did like him heading into last year. I didn't go whole hog and, and get burned like a lot of people did, but I'm still not willing to quit. If, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of profit in going after last year's trash, and I write about this every year in the Rotowire magazine, and it, and it works out well. Um, and so this is one of the guys I'm looking at as, okay, yeah, you burned me a lot last year, so your value should be cheap. And I would compare it to, like, I mentioned Peralta earlier. There's no, there's not really a discount in Freddie Peralta. People are trying that back again. Uh, Corbin Burns, Mitch Keller, a couple of guys. When you look at the difference between expected outcomes and actual outcomes, people are paying the price. Like, I paid 12 bucks to get Mitch Keller in the, in the NL auction uh, because there was a few of us that liked Mitch Keller. But Nick Pavetta, I think, went in the reserves. He was just sitting out there, or he went really late in the auction for dirt cheap. So that's the example of going after last year's bums and trying to find some profit this year. Not, hey, not only would that Lucas Giolito path just in general be great, but Giolito was one of those guys last year who really stepped up the changeup usage, and uh, it was to great effect for him. Uh, whiff rate on the pitch of better than 40%, so uh, I think Pavetta would love to see a similar growth for himself this season. Uh, on these Friday shows, we like to uh, wrap things up with a few toss-ups, some baseball, some, non- some non-baseball. We're going to get to those here, Jason. Uh, more likely 2021 First rounder, Austin Meadows or Keston Hira? Austin Meadows. Ooh, why? That was a that was a pretty quick response. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I am not on the helium train. I am not on the helium train of Keston Hira right now. He's going for insane prices. And just the track record, uh, Austin Meadows, we saw what he did last year and saw the growth. And I think there's a little more in the tank uh, there. And that's where I'm going. All right, that's fair. Uh, bigger 2020 impact. One more raise question we'll get in here. Brendan McKay or Trevor Richards, which seems like a trap question in some ways, but when I think about the optimal usage that we were discussing with the Rays, I'm really intrigued to see what they do with Richards. So am I, <laughs> because he's a, that's a, a good <laughs> example of a guy that has his limit, trying to make the most uh, of what you got there. Uh, and he with that with the fastball changeup. I mean, everybody knows when you come to Tampa Bay, you start throwing your fastball high and your changeup slow. It's what they do with every pitcher. And Richards has got a really good changeup. There's a reason why they wanted him in that deal when they got Nick Anderson. Uh, and I think he's the perfect type of guy to to have more success in this 2020 season than he would over the course of a full season. Yeah, I'm hoping MLB uh, embraces a sort of using the season almost as like a, a lab experiment uh, league-wide. Um, and if they end up doing that, that would be great. But we know the teams are almost going to have to. So if the season does get off the ground, going to be really fascinating to see how the Rays attack it, a team that is just optimally built 
to handle this both with the, what the, their roster looks like and just organizationally, spiritually, how that team uh, has built itself uh, both uh, physically and mentally. Be really interesting to see how they would attack this season. Uh, getting off the baseball field, uh, what's a better television series, Parks and Rec or The Office? Uh, Parks and Rec is my is my all time favorite show, and I love The Office too. But with Parks and Rec, like I have, if you watch last night's special, I have the I Met Little Sebastian T shirt. I have a Mouse Rat T shirt, um, and it's what I loved about it. If you watch the, the 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 part before they did the actual special, they talked about hey, West Wing was this serious level show about national government, and when they wanted to write a comedic version of it, they decided to take it to a local level and use the same types of characters you know even rob Lowe played in both series uh but it's i've watched parks and rec through end to end uh six times now uh the sixth time being uh last month which uh which was a uh, you know april i think was last month uh so that was that's where we uh, uh that's how much i love the show so i was uh, last night's special was exactly what i needed uh to watch not now i want season eight uh, i know that'll never happen but it was uh Great show. Now my, now, my son, if you were to ask my son, my son loves The Office. He's watched it twice through. I've watched it twice through. My son constantly drops um, Office references. His most favorite one as a 14-year-old is that that's what she said. Uh, and it, it's like a proud father moment when he, start, when he starts dropping that in context. And it's like, man, he gets it. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I do love both shows. I, I think start to finish Parks and Rec is the stronger series. I think the... The characters evolve in a more interesting way. I know there were some pretty major cast changes on The Office that probably hurt the show in the long run, and it had to have, right? I mean, eventually you lose Michael Scott. Like, that's a pretty big loss. But I also think exactly. as a as a main character, I don't know if nine seasons of Michael would have worked anyway. Maybe Maybe that was just kind of a small blessing in disguise for the show in a weird way because yeah as i've rewatched both shows there are so many uncomfortable moments with michael that i don't necessarily feel when i rewatch parks and rec <laughs> i mean i think the other deal was like just the contrasting characters from michael scott to robert california it's like i did not i was just not on board with that i, I just didn't i was like yeah this isn't working for me I really struggled to get through that. Uh, but at the same point, it's like when when Chris Traeger had to exit Parks and Rec, you, you miss that that overly positive character. But at the same point, the rest of the cast was still able to carry it. Absolutely. We got one more question for you. We know you're a big fan of Whataburger, but Whataburger versus all other fast food burgers. Is there any fast food burger that you would choose over Whataburger? I know you've traveled this country many many times for for work and uh, you've, you've probably had every chain burger by now is there any chain burger that can top whataburger so so frame of reference you know i grew up in i grew up in texas so i had whataburger as a kid uh and when i lived in florida the the fran they finally franchised uh, closer to me they've always been in the panhandle of florida but then they franchised to orlando and tampa uh and jacksonville my father Worked for the franchise group that helped stand that up. So I used to have access to a lot of free Whataburger. It was awesome. Oh. Uh, right? But now, now the closest Whataburger to me is five and a half hours away. It's right at the Florida-Georgia line, and it's five and a half hours. And I'm not joking, or I almost considered driving down there last week over my three-day weekend to go get some. Would have been an 11-hour <laughs> round trip, but I, I nearly got in the car. My wife had to talk me out of it. Uh, so that's, that's where my level of passion is for it. So... Uh, 
the closest thing, honestly, the closest thing I have to it is the the Freddy's franchise. Freddy's is based out of Oklahoma. They do they did franchise here in North Carolina, um, and I I find them a a good. Uh, a good pacifier for the Whataburger crave. I really love their fries uh, and their burgers are really good. And the same service. I, honestly, that's what I love about Whataburger when I go. Service, uh, I can get it any way I want. There's like over 36,000 combinations of, of burgers you can get at Whataburger, uh, depending on what condiments and whatnot. Uh, but I always feel like I'm back home. You know, My father passed away a few years ago, but when I go there, it reminds me of spending time with him. So that's that whole equation's there, but Freddy's is really the closest thing that I have where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not on board with In-N-Out, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, we've gone to Phoenix and had Burger Wars, uh, hopped around the different places to try it, uh, but nobody's going to sway me. I mean, I drink my coffee every morning out of a out of a 50 uh, ceramic Whataburger <laughs> coffee mug. I have a Whataburger Yeti. Nobody's swaying me. I don't care what, <laughs> oh, I hate it. Whatever. It's mine. <laughs> I have never had it. I've uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I lived in Washington D.C. for about four years. I've only been to Texas once. Uh, I've I've never had it. So I'm well, it's all on I ten. So if you go, if you ever got to Arizona, they're all over Phoenix. But if you're ever along I ten, uh, you can get there. So if you go down to uh, you know Florida Panhandle or there that stops in Jacksonville, uh, you know I say this. I have a I have a brother who works in the Five Guys organization. Um, now Five Guys, I do love the way they you know you order a small fry and you get a giant bag of them. Uh, so it's like I, I had Five Guys is is an option. Uh, you know you're being both you guys being from the Midwest. You've got Culvers obviously, and I do like Culvers, but nothing's taking nothing's knocking Whataburger off the top uh, seat for me. There is definitely some sort of nostalgic feeling I get from Culver's, too. It was the first place, uh, when I moved to Wisconsin in eighth grade, uh, my parents and, and I were riding around with a the realtor. They brought me along to look at houses, and she brought us to Culver's for lunch. And it was the first thing we really liked about Wisconsin. I mean, we like a lot of things, having all lived here for 20-plus years now. Uh, but that's the burger I really kind of grew up on, right? After high school sporting events, we'd go there. Uh, it's just kind of the, mm-hmm. the place you go in most Wisconsin towns. So I uh, definitely feel that sort of nostalgia as well. Whataburger, I've only had it once. And I, frankly, I got to go back. I got to go back with you sometime once we get back to a first pitch Arizona. And uh, I, I basically, I'm going to let you order for me. That's what I'm going to do. Just whatever you want to <laughs> order for me, I'm gonna, I'll eat all of it. I, I'll, I'll trust you completely because I, I know you'll get the order right. Uh, give Jason a follow. At Jason Collette on Twitter. Give the sleeper in the bust lots of listens if you don't already. And follow his work at Rotowire and Fangraphs as well. Jason, thanks for jumping on the show with us today. Hey, it was fun, guys. Thanks for having me. That will do it for today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash podcast. If you want to give us a test drive, you can get a free 90-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free. 90 days. For Michael Beller and Jason Collette, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns next week. Have a great weekend.